It's often said that you learn more from tough times than from good times. For Formula One drivers, tough times can feel very tough. Losing your hard-fought place in the sport, wondering if you'll ever get it back, that's among the toughest of all. Jan Lammers waited longer than anyone else in history for that second chance. More than 10 years. And in those tough times, he learned a lot. In those days, I thought I knew it all, but later on you learned that you'd never know it all. If you over and over and do the same thing and end up in the same position, you have to wonder yourself, like, you know, you have something to do with that. So I thought, it's me. I can't blame all these teams and all the situations. So I thought, well, if it's not my driving, then I have to smarten up a bit, you know, I'm probably not smart enough. Welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid. I'm Tom Clarkson, and Jan is one of the most thoughtful people we've ever had on the show. His Formula One career is a lesson for any aspiring racing driver or anyone who wants to be successful and feel fulfilled in any walk of life. I'm happy because I know that if I would have won one Grand Prix, I would have been annoyed that I didn't win more. It's good to strive for perfection, but if your strive for perfection ends up in never being satisfied with anything anymore, then you go a little bit too far. Jan's always lived in and around the world of Formula One. He was born near the Zandvoort circuit in the Netherlands and he learned car control before he was a teenager. Success in the European Formula Three championship propelled him into Formula One in the late 1970s. But he admits his own impatience and a lack of guidance meant he didn't get the chance to prove his talent in a front-running car. On his best days, bad luck stopped him challenging for Grand Prix podiums, and he struggled to find a reliable team where he could prove his speed, and he dropped out of the sport in 1982. Determined to get back in, Jan studied himself. He learned new things and changed his attitude. That change helped him to a nail-biting victory at Le Mans and to achieve his personal aim of returning to Formula One after a decade away. He talks about all of this so candidly, it really is inspiring. And he's now applying all of his know-how to his role as sporting director at his beloved Zandvoort. He's marvelling at Max Verstappen's rise, working to make the Dutch Grand Prix the fantastic spectacle that it is, and setting new standards in sustainability. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jan, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you very much for your time. Now, look, you're someone who's lived in Zandvoort all your life. How special is it to see the place buzzing like it is this weekend with the Grand Prix in town? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, it's pretty awesome, of course. Uh, I've, uh, I'm literally born here, uh, not in the hospital in Harlem, you know, it's 10, to 10 miles away, but uh, literally in uh, my mum and dad's bedroom, about 200 metres from... Uh, from the sea, but about uh, 100 meters from a garage uh, that was call, uh, called uh, Garage David. It was a Volkswagen uh, garage there. And in the old days, we had like uh, Jim Clark there and we had the McLarens there and, well, some other teams, uh, Tyrrell, I believe. Uh, but then also in the other garages, like the Fiat garage had Ferrari. So all the local garages were hosting the teams. And on like Friday morning, if practice started, that was the moment of glory for the mechanics. I think the older folks will probably remember what I mean, because then they could drive their cars over the street, the regular street, like a parade over the road uh, with the engines not being towed, but really drove them into the, the, the main entrance of the track and, and put them in the, in the pit lane here. So I was born 100 meters away from this garage. So I'm a bit of a beach boy, but I grew up uh, in this environment, uh, playing in the dunes, the beach, and, and then, uh, yeah, and then lucky enough, I, I ended up uh, at the skid school from uh, Robbie Slotemaker. Uh, it's like an old Dutch legend, mostly known for his car control skills. He did all the spins in the movie of Lamar from Steve McQueen. So I was there when I was 14, it was lovely. Uh, but Rob had a skid school here and, and uh, yeah, when I was 12, I, uh, I walked in there and he, he taught me all I know. So until I was 16, I didn't even know how to drive straight, you know, he was teaching me everything. <laughs> so to be born here, to live here, to be, uh, become a racing driver, to end up in Formula One and to do a few of the local Grand Prix, uh, that is already fantastic. 
But then Max comes rolling from the sky and he did so well. He's a world champion now. Uh, and then we have our own Dutch Grand Prix back and, and, and in, a, in, a, in a form that we are so proud of. It's wonderful. Everything yeah. you've just described makes me realize how much you and the local community must have missed the race when it wasn't here from 1985 to 2021. Well, we, we, uh, if we missed it, then we missed it the way it was. And the way it was, it was almost always initiated by uh, yeah, sports clubs. Uh, so people not, not particularly there for their business skills, but more for their passion and enthusiasm for motor racing. Uh, so, so I think, uh, yeah, Bernie Ecclestone, uh, yeah, he, he nearly got an ulcer, I think, from, from the problems that we uh, settled them up with because there was never an, an, enough money to do anything. It was always like a battle here financially. So when Prince Bernard uh, Jr. and, and, and uh, uh, his partner, Menno de Jong, started the initiative to get the Grand Prix back, and that started with Bernie, that was something that, that he, of course, uh, had to raise an eyebrow like, oh my God, we're not going there again. But then if you see with the organization now behind it, it's two sports marketing uh, uh, companies, uh, Sport Vibes and uh, TIG from This Is Golf. Uh, and the racetrack of Zandvoort, those three companies are in, in fact the Dutch Grand Prix organizers and there's a lot of business and, and commercial and entertainment skills behind that and that's what produces this. Do you think the race could have come back without Max Verstappen? Uh, no, no. E even though we had Max when, we, uh, when, they peop when people started talking about like, do you believe that, that uh, the Dutch Grand Prix uh, will be back? I, I said to uh, many people like, well, the chances of me being struck by lightning in the next 10 seconds is probably higher. So it shows <laughs> you how much I know about it. But anyway, I have to say I couldn't know that that these skills were, were, uh, were in this country. So it was a wonderful experience. What about the wider impact of Max Verstappen on, on the Dutch motorsport community? I mean, has there been a, a surge in interest in karting, for example? Oh, I mean, uh, motorsport is booming here. Uh, I mean, we have MP Motorsport that are leading the Formula 2 championship. Uh, we have uh, Van Amersfoort, uh, and, and they all do Formula 2, 3, 4, Formula Regional. Um, and then, then uh, we have Atze Kerkhoff uh, and uh, Rudy van Buren, who will in the future be the driver coaches. Uh, Atze Kerkhoff is a Dutch guy who's, who's doing the driver's coaching for Alfa Romeo uh, in the Sims and everything. And we have Rudy van Buren who will do the same thing for next year with Red Bull. So there is an enormous amount of Dutch uh, expertise in motor racing just rising. And, and I think uh, that enthusiasm uh, for motor racing is, is absolutely uh, yeah, escalated uh, through Max. So there could very well be another Max Verstappen just making their way through now. I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, there will be a lot of very, very good racing drivers, uh, of course, uh, coming uh, to the top, rising to the top. But uh, people like Max Verstappen come around once every 100 years, I think. So uh, we, uh, personally, I really think, and, and uh, if he hasn't proven that in the past, then I'm, I'm, I'm convinced he will prove it in the future. I, I really think, uh, as objective as I can, I take my orange glasses off, uh, I really think he's the greatest of all time. It's hard to compare uh, Fangio with, with the likes of, of Senna, Schumacher, uh, Hamilton and, and, uh, and Verstappen uh, because it's different eras, uh, different uh, challenges. Uh, it was physically very, very hard uh, in the in, uh, yeah, 70s, 80s and now it's, it's a little more ergonomic. You've raced for 40 years and we're going to come on to your career in a moment. Yeah, and what is it that impresses you so much about Max? What is uh, very impressive with Max is his output. Uh, he, he seldom, or I've never seen him have an off day. Uh, you, you know, you've been around in motor racing. You know that glazed look in their eyes uh, that, that you ask them questions uh, while they still have so many questions themselves. So they, uh, you expect them to answer to your question uh, and they haven't even answered their own question. So that's when you get ahead of the game. And that's why for these guys, it's sometimes very tough. If you, they just get out of the car, they just had a race that was horrible. Uh, so they haven't processed that information yet. And there's all the press asking them questions. So you've seen that glazed blick of confused drivers that they don't know why their teammate is so much quicker. They don't know why they can't get any further than whatever position. You've seen that glazed look. And I've never seen that with Max. He's always there. Sometimes 
in one of those press encounters after a session. Uh, he's impatient because he's so angry that he's off the pace that he wants to talk to his engineers and not to lots of journalists. So he wants to get on with it. Uh, so we've seen that. But I've never seen him with, the, with that vague look like, like, I don't know what's going on and I don't know why I'm so slow today. And, and do you think winning the World Championship has taken any of, if there were any, any of the rough edges off him? Uh, I think it just, uh, yeah, it calmed his mind uh, because um, that was always the target. Uh, and he's always very clear in his, in his communication, sometimes a little more clear than uh, the people like, uh, around him uh, like it. But uh, he's very, very clear. So he's also said like, okay, I've reached my goal. I always wanted to be a world champion Formula One. I am a world champion Formula One. Uh, he never set out to have eight world championships. Uh, so so I, I find that clear communication uh, and that also shows his appreciation for all what he already achieved. We all know that, that uh, whether you're uh, winning five, six, seven championships, uh, you can't do without the best car. You need to have that. Uh, what I find uh, impressive with, with Max is that he didn't always have the best car and still he won so many races and in the end the championship. Uh, he started off this year with a car that wasn't quite as good as the Ferraris. Uh, so a uh, great compliment to, to, to the Red Bull team and Max that they've turned that around. And I think now they have had the best setup also with strategies and everything. But still, uh, it's, it's great for a team to know, uh, as we say in Holland, it's great to know that you're not milking in a basket. Uh, you know that with, with Max, if you develop your car, that he will make the best use of it. That just sort of like hinges you up. Uh, so that's almost like the thermal of success, eh, I call it. So they, their, their interaction between the drivers and the team know that you can ask questions to the team that they can answer eventually. And the other way around, whatever you ask the driver, he will deliver. And that's, that's of course, an unbeatable combination, as we have seen. Is it odd for you to see Max having this success? Because you must have known him all his life because, you know, you know Jos well, of course. Yeah, well, I, I know Jos and Jos drove for us in the A1 team. And I really think that Jos was already a driver with the X factor. Uh, but I think if you, if you compare Jos with Max, then the great example is that Max, when his talent was at his highest, the moment was also there. Uh, there was a place at Toro Rosso and Toro Rosso was quick enough. Uh, the team was good enough to, to show his potential. Uh, so he could do something with that because the last thing you want to experience if you go from uh, the lower categories, uh, Formula 2, Formula 3, usually for a lot of drivers, they, they, they collect lots and lots and lots of trophies in karting, in Formula 4, Formula 3, Formula 2, and then they go to Formula 1. And sometimes that trophy cabinet stays empty for, for like uh, two, three years and even longer, sometimes for their whole career. Uh, look at uh, Rolf Schumacher. Uh, he enters into Formula One and then uh, you, you drive uh, at best in the middle of the pack or at the back and still you have to get in the car with the winning mentality. So that's like an artificial uh, sort of like self-hypnotized uh, way of like, you know, you have to get the best, best of that potential. And somebody like Max, he comes from, from the karting, which, which he's already was uh, very special. Uh, then he goes into the Formula 3 and in a very short time, he, he, he's a front runner. Uh, and then he, he has the connection in Formula 1. He gets with the team that also is successful uh, because, uh, and that keeps your, your, your flow uh, so so uh, other drivers are, are challenged because all of a sudden they're not winning anymore and, and, uh, and that's difficult for them. And Max have been able to, to connect and win the races uh, very soon in Formula One. Somebody like Jos uh, had the difficulty of having to start next to Michael Schumacher. It was extremely physical in those days. Jos already had a, had a bit of trouble with, with a, an old uh, neck injury. I think uh, Jos was battling forces that later on uh, Max didn't have to, to deal with. Let's talk about Jan Lammers, the racing driver now. First of all, Formula One. It was a frustrating time for you in F1, but how do you reflect on it all now? I'm very happy about it because everything I sort of like set out to do when I was 16, I thought I'm going to win the Monaco Grand Prix and I'm going to win the Dutch Grand Prix and the World Championship. I'm going to win Indianapolis, the Rally Monte Carlo, Le Mans, Daytona. Well, the only thing that worked is Le Mans and Daytona. All the other things I didn't achieve. But then if I see 
whatever else around it that I experienced, you know, being in Japan for two and a half years uh, altogether, uh, living in, in California for a year, in England for a bit, and the experiences that you sort of like uh, go through and the people that you meet and that what you learn from the experience and the people, that is something that I have never could have had in my, my focus. So I'm very privileged. It was also uh, the the accident and the death of Ayrton Senna uh, that was was uh, yeah quite a mind changer for myself uh, because you're watching uh, Ayrton drive and there's a racing driver who's doing all the things that you would have loved to do uh, so you envy him very much uh, with a lot of respect you're watching him and then all of a sudden you see that horrible accident and he passes away and then that was a confusing experience because I thought like yeah you know, who should envy who now, you know, I sit here still, still healthy and well. And, and uh, so from that moment on, you know, I've, I've uh, as a way of life, I've always counted my blessings. I've never driven for a team that was good enough that I could either show the, 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 the level or the lack of my talent. Uh, because maybe if I would have driven for Ferrari or one of the other wonderful teams, uh, McLaren, Williams, you name it, if I would drive for them, maybe I would have seen that, that I was like, like an Irvine or a Baricello or a, uh, so, so good enough to win the odd race, but not the world championship. Uh, so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy because I know that if I would have won one Grand Prix, I would have been annoyed that I didn't win more. It's good to strive for perfection, but if you're, you're, your strive for perfection ends up in never being satisfied with anything anymore, then you go a little bit too far. Let's yeah. talk about your level. How much hype was there around you after you won the European Formula 3 Championship in 1978? Yeah, bearing in mind that in those days we didn't have internet. We all had like the traditional media and it was like two main uh, newspapers in Holland that broadcasted it. That was one was evolved around Rotterdam. Uh, the Common Daily is that uh, translated uh, and then the Telegraph from Amsterdam. And then we had some other press, general press uh, that followed it. And we had like two car magazines. Uh, I think we had uh, the public TV channel one, maybe even two. But that was it. Uh, so, so communication was from a totally different uh, level. Now people can practically uh, uh, drive along uh, in, in, in a Grand Prix. So with the media that we have then, it was comparable that what is happening with Max now. To win the European Championship, I'm still the only Dutch uh, person that has ever done that. I hope that the next one will be my son. And and uh, so we had a lot of media attention, but but then you are a little bit uh, like a celebrity and a racing driver. How much interest was there in you oh, mega, from Formula mega. One? I mean, o options for 1979. You ended up at Shadow, but were there yeah. other options? Um, no, not really, not really. There weren't. Were, uh, I, I also have to say that the level of management around a racing driver, like I was at that time, uh, was was zero. Uh, there was absolutely no expertise uh, in in Holland that that I ran into that could actually help me. So uh, I, I was like a pupil that that had to teach. You know, I had to still learn so much. But then I was was the one eye in the line of blind. And so when I went for Shadow, there was absolutely no chance. Uh, and I didn't have the patience to wait another year. Alain uh, Prost, who I raced against in Formula 3, he was patient enough to wait a year and then he went straight to McLaren and he had a chance to do well. Uh, and I probably jumped a little bit too quickly for Shadow, thinking like, I've made it to Formula 1, I drive there for one year to get experience. But you don't want to have the experience of losing races with a bad team. Uh, so, so you always have to be with a team where you have a chance to grow. But hindsight is always twenty twenty, isn't it? Course, and when you're given the opportunity, I imagine it's incredibly difficult to yeah, say no. Uh, I wasn't any smarter either, you know, that, that I was uh, born in, in a very uh, uh, wealthy family without money. Uh, so so uh, I had five brothers, one sister. So, so in, in terms of, of joy of life and health and everything and enjoying the simple things of life, I, I was very wealthy, uh, if you look at it that way. But, but we didn't have any, any money in our family. There was no experience, business experience or entrepreneurship in our family. Yeah, you... you, you you have to pave your own way uh, that, that you need to drive on, more or less. Tell us about Elio De Angelis. He was your, your teammate that year. I always thought he was slightly underrated, a really quick racing driver. Is that your experience of him? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But we learn now lately to, to be uh, very, very, very good. You know, to be an exceptional talent in, in motor racing is a nice start. Uh, because there's many of them. And the ALIO in those days, there was no junior programs. Uh, the, the, there were no uh, factory, uh, big factory. Well, there probably were, but there were fewer factory teams. And the whole structure and the institute to educate young drivers. Now we have uh, the Ferrari Academy. We have the, well, you name it. There, there's, there's loads of uh, academies and, and junior programs. And uh, I think Lewis was probably the first one to be picked up at the age of 12, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, by, by Ron, by Ron, Ron Dennis, Dennis. Uh, so so that was wonderful and and uh, and good for him because I, I was already following then and and I really thought like wow you know there's somebody special, but you didn't have that then and Elio was was one of these guys that was already quick in karting, he immediately was quick in Formula Three, so I grew up with him through through, through that time. So to me it was not a surprise that uh, that he was quick. Elio was 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 such a classic. He he was such a beautiful person. I never forget that picture. I mean, he was my teammate. Uh, so for a whole year we drove together. And then a year later, there was a live uh, television show um, in, uh, uh, just for the, the German Grand Prix. And they had him in the studio and he was there behind the piano in a, in a beautiful yellow sweater. The whole setting and the whole picture, you know, was, was really soft and beautiful and totally the opposite from the, the, the bestial uh, racing scene. And, and he sat there and then he, he played some classic music. And there was a picture that, that will always stay with me, like, like from Elio, apart from him being the, 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 the great racing driver. So, and I really thought, like, well, that was such a beautiful side of, uh, of Elio. And uh, it's a shame that, that I wasn't mature enough at that time to enjoy his, his company, because I think he was a beautiful person. But I only started to realize that when I was late uh, at that moment, you only talk to each other based on, on what's behind the comma, you know, are you one tenth quicker or slower? Uh, so that's all you're, you're thinking about at that age. Now, look, let's fast forward to the following year, 1980, the D4 ATS. Let's talk Long Beach. You qualified fourth, an extraordinary performance. Just how good was that lap? Well, it was uh, surprising. It, it was uh, that whole period, let's say the first half year of 1980, has, has educated me, me incredible in a lot of ways because um, a little bit of the background, I started the year with Gunther Schmidt at ATS and he thought we had Heineken of a sponsor, but we didn't have Heineken of a sponsor. So at uh, Wolfgang Kup was the manager from, from uh, ATS at that moment. And at some point he got very nervous and he said like, like well, I don't care. If, uh, we said like, we don't have Heineken as a sponsor. Yeah, well, whatever you can come up with, if you don't have Heineken, fine, but come up with something else because Gunther Schmidt is going to kill me if I tell him that, that you have nothing. I said, yeah, but we do have nothing. Oh, my God. So I said to my manager in Holland, I said, let's go to Gunther. So we went to Germany. We sat down and we told Gunther, like, listen, Gunther, we have no money. Zero. So he fell off his chair and he thought, like, oh, my God, because the car was ready. Everything was prepared. He invested his money in it and we had no money. So very embarrassing for us, of course, but also a difficult situation. Then I said to Gunther, I said, okay, why not do it like this? We, uh, we just make a deal for 100,000 uh, per race. In those days, uh, you spoke about that kind of money. So uh, let's say like I do two races and we make an agreement for 200,000 uh, uh, Deutschmarks, dollars, whatever it was, uh, 200,000. And um, if after two races I haven't found a sponsor, that's it. I leave the team. I owe you 200. Uh, I haven't got that now, but for the rest of my life, I can see myself earning that. So I will pay you. I don't know how long it will take me, but that's it. So after two races, I had no money. I was out. The car was pretty bad because we, uh, we were running two cars, a two-car team, and ATS wasn't ready for that. So the equipment was pretty bad, and then uh, I, I fell out of uh, Formula One. I just went to South Africa just to watch the race and to see if, if a miracle would happen. Uh, a miracle didn't happen, but, but uh, an accident happened with Mark Surer. Uh, in front of my eyes, uh, I was watching the practice, he, he, he crashed and he broke both his legs. So he couldn't drive the next race. So all of a sudden, it was the other way around, where I was the only one experienced with the team and the car and everything. So I was the easiest one to say, like, okay, let Jan drive the car again. 
So he asked me uh, if I wanted to drive. Well, of course I did. But in the meanwhile, there was the new car designed by Gustav Brunner. Mark broke his legs on Friday, and I did an attempt in the other car on the next day to qualify. I missed one-tenth or something. So here I am. I come back from South Africa trying, you know, everything to get the speed out of the car, and I don't qualify. Three weeks later, I'm in Long Beach, and I do exactly the same thing I've been doing for years. And all of a sudden, I was, uh, all the time, I was in the free practice. I was P4 and ended up P8. But then qualifying was there. And in those days, if you were the quickest driver team, you got the soft tires. Uh, so I got the same tires as the front runners. So I was just doing the same thing what I've been doing for years. And then I get past that pit straight, and I see P1 on my board, you know, in Formula One after being in there for like 17, 18 months. And I thought, P1? And I immediately went straight onto the escape road <laughs> because I was so confused. So I made a donut and continued. And for like 50 minutes, I was P1. And then later on, you know, I trumbled back uh, to, to, uh, to P4. But still, I thought like, okay, I'm never going to doubt myself anymore, ever. Because I did exactly the same thing as I did three weeks before. Now I have a good car and I'm running up front. So I promised myself like doubt is a total waste of time. But was it a particularly clean lap? And Do you remember not, it th not as being entirely. very satisfying? No, it was a good lap, and it is a Long Beach is a, is a track where it's all like like uh, how do you say that um, spontaneously? Hey, you you just act. You don't think. Silverstone I always found difficult. You have so much time to think on that straight. Like I'm going to take uh, take it flat, uh, so so you can think too much. But Long Beach is is just all responsive, like like downhill slalom skiing. You just do. You don't think. Uh, uh, so it was a lap that went very well. Uh, I knew it was a good lap. And then I came sort of onto the pit straight and you went over a bit of a hump on the apex. I obviously went a bit too quick and I knew I was going to hit the wall, but I didn't care. So I just brushed the wall uh, and because the, the finish line was like 50 meters further. So I finished that lap having known that I've uh, hit uh, the, the, the left rear. Uh, so that... That was a good lap, but the next day I paid the price for it because uh, 200 meters uh, after the start, I broke my drive shaft, the one that I damaged myself probably. Uh, Roy Tops was our mechanic and he, he's, he's a fantastic mechanic, uh, but we didn't have many spare parts. So I think the, 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 the left uh, drive shaft broke from what I did myself the day before. But that was an experience going from hero to zero. Uh, on, on Sunday morning at breakfast in one of those typical diners in America. I opened the papers and uh, the Ferraris were not having a good time. And the headline was, maybe it was a little lo local paper, eh, but it was a big line for me uh, and, and my favorite still. And it said, Lammers leaves the Ferraris red-faced. And, and uh, so that was, you know, nice to wake up like that. But anyway, so a good start. And then uh, after 200 meters, I was out. How did it feel on the grid? looking back and seeing someone like Alan Jones behind you on the grid? Uh, well, I've, I already, uh, my, my first Grand Prix, I was in Argentina in 79, um, uh, and I always looked up uh, to people like Niki Lauda, Mario Andretti, and, and uh, Emerson Fittipaldi, they all, uh, and Niki I, I didn't know too well, but particularly with Emerson, I became great friends still uh, his son is karting and racing uh, so so but those people were icons for me so on my first race i was next to nikki lauda on the grid not because i was so quick but because he had a bad car but still i didn't have the results really to to be able to enjoy it completely well it's such a fickle business this isn't it and, and did that p4 on the grid in long beach give you any interest from the bigger teams not immediately then. I'm sure I got their attention. But uh, the year before, I was already uh, 14th with the Shadow. Uh, so I qualified very well. Usually I was struggling to qualify. Though. So street racing uh, was, was, uh, yeah, was my thing, uh, I guess. Um, my best period I had uh, was in 1980. So first we had um, Long Beach. Uh, so the speed was good. The race was history. Uh, then we had Monaco later on. And uh, I feel that there also I would have been able to qualify in the second row 
and maybe even better than that because I really had a fantastic lap. Now these days we would all remember if if you had two times purple and then the last uh, last sector you run into traffic, then we all remember like oh you could have had pole there. I had a lap like that, so the first uh, two sectors were really very very good. They felt brilliant, but then I came around the uh, the swimming pool and then there was uh, I believe Keke Rosberg, had the father of uh, Nico. He was there driving slowly, so my lap was gone. So I ended up being 13th on the grid. And then in the race, there was the accident where uh, the Tyrrell just, just somersaulted through the... Derek uh, Daly, yeah. Yeah, with Derek Daly. Uh, that accident just took place. I waited until all the, 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 the mess was settled. And then I thought, okay, now I can drive by. And as I drove by, um, Ricardo Patrese just came uh, reversing out of that pileup. So I hit my right rear tire. So I was in the pit for like uh, maybe five or six laps. So when I got back onto the track, I was behind uh, Gilles Villeneuve in the Ferrari. He was running second and I could follow him. Uh, so the speed was there. I think later I saw that I had like the fourth quickest time in the race. So the speed was there, but it's something that, that evaporates and nobody will ever know. Uh, we know now. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. So that was nice, and I'm proud of that. Then we went to uh, um, Zolder. I was running in between the Ferraris. I was catching uh, Jody, I believe. I was P6. I was catching Jody and driving away, away from Jill or the other way around. I can't quite remember. Then my gearbox broke. And then uh, we had Spain. Uh, I qualified, I think, 10th, but I was sixth after the first lap behind Alan Jones. Alan had softer tires than I had. I knew that. So he disappears out of sight in the beginning. But later I caught him up and I was right on his gearbox with, with the harder tire. So yeah, that was the right choice. And then my brakes uh, uh, were gone. So uh, I had to pedal to, to the bottom. So I had to go in the pits and Alan Jones wins the race. You know, so, so those were good races. And then to finalize that story, uh, I think it was 81 in South Africa where Nelson was leading, um, Elio Djanzelis was running second. And I went from 10 to third on the first lap. I was uh, about to pass Elio. Uh, on the second lap and we touched and my wheel was gone so there I was running top three speed so those were my my good races in in uh, in Formula One. Was there ever talk of you staying at ATS for the remainder of the 1980 season or was Mark Sura always going to come back and retake his seat? Yeah, I think Mark was always going to come back uh, because was uh, Gunther Schmidt had an image of, of, of being a very German German, you know, uh, and uh, like like uh, I want not have this anymore. Uh, that's literally uh, uh, translated from from German. Ich möchte das nicht haben. But you know, so you can always make fun of of the character side of somebody it's almost like a cartoon uh, so so people sometimes made fun of him but he, he was a great guy and he was straightforward he was honest so uh, I think that was the proof that he just promised uh, Sure that he could could get back and uh, although we were doing good uh, he got a seat back and I went to Ensign uh, thinking that I could rule the world now of course and then I was back on the grid again so uh, I, I, I've seen that you, you, as a driver, you can't defy uh, the, the law of uh, yeah, gravity. And then once you'd gone to Enzyme, the cars got harder, didn't they? And then by the end of 82, had you slightly fallen out of love with Formula One? And were you looking to go to Porsche in, in sports cars? Um, well, that was really maybe a bit from desperation because in 1982 uh, I think the Theodore was a very good car only uh, I don't think we did enough mileage to make it reliable eh? there was Gary Anderson uh, and there was Tony Southgate so people that know the business so I'm sure that if, if we would have had a little bit more time and a bit more budget then then uh, that car could have become good and there were signs of it being good because in, in the Monaco the first day we didn't have any tires and we were in the pit lane with just our rims, uh, just, just very much as a demonstration. So the first day I didn't drive. And then on Saturday morning we could drive and uh, we were 18th. Uh, and, and maybe there was like 30 people trying to qualify in those days. Uh, and then uh, during qualifying I was 21st, uh, just missed out by a smidge. So the car was, was really good. But, you know... I. I you never know how good you are because you always drive at your own limit uh, and you think that's it. But, but yeah, if there's no other driver getting in there and, and proving that, that there's still more speed there. 
So uh, I did the best uh, that I could with the things that I have available. Uh, I think that that also, just just from from an intellectual point of view, I had to learn a, a lot. Uh, I know that in those days I thought I knew it all, but later on you learned that you you never know it all. <laughs> what were your feelings about leaving Formula One? Did you see Formula One as the pinnacle that you always wanted to return to? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's proven by, by my comeback in 1992. Uh, I had the opportunity. Uh, March was, was in uh, lots of trouble with Ilmore also. And Henny Vollenberg, a uh, Dutch, uh, Dutch guy that uh, is uh, used to running a transport company. And uh, with a transport company, you look, you look at the digits behind the comma uh, because that's, that's very detailed uh, planning. And, and uh, uh, so he, he was economically, he was a great guy. So I think he did a lot of damage control and made uh, March last, uh, I think, at least a half a year longer than, than they otherwise would. Would have so I had an opportunity to come back to uh, to Formula One. Uh, it, it did cost me quite a bit of my private money, everything that I had at that moment actually. Um, uh, but because it went wrong, uh, we we paid uh, Ilmore for the engines, and Ilmore just said like, "Well, thank you. We take that from the account from March of last year." Uh, and so there, I was empty-handed. So I had a, a court case of like one week, nine to five in the morning in London. We simply didn't handle our business very well then. So they won the court case. I lost all my money, and uh, and that was it. So I did only uh, two races in '92. It's a funny record that you hold, actually. It's the longest gap between races. I've got the stats here. It's 10 years, three months and 22 days. Um, <laughs> what does that stat mean to you? Well, uh, that can mean that uh, I'm very determined. And that, yeah. uh, I think later from my sports car career, we could probably say that, that, that I'm a long distance runner. You know, uh, you can also say that I catch on slowly. Uh, so, so uh, yeah. Um, it is what it is. I, I must say I stand by what I did then because I really thought like, well, when I'm 90, uh, I don't want to sort of like sit there in an old people's home and thinking like maybe I should have tried it one more. So I just did it. And I also think uh, very often now you get the question like, like, you know, how do you get involved in racing? Parents that have no know nothing about racing but they have a son that they would like to start up how do you do that and what i always uh, say to people is like if you do something people will help you if you do something with all that you have in you uh, whatever little it might be but if you do something people will help you but people won't do it for you uh, so, so you have to take the initiative uh, as a metaphor. If you start the 24 hours of Le Mans with only one hour of fuel, then during the first hour you tell this to people and then soon you will find somebody who will sponsor the second hour. Uh, so, so it's like a marathon. It starts with the first step. Start with what you have. Uh, go to the local butcher. Uh, these days it's all supermarkets, of course, but still. Find somebody within your area and, and if you have any talent, your biggest talent should probably be to enthuse those people around you that can help you further. You sound like a hustler. <laughs> I might be. <laughs> Look, how had the cars changed in the 10 years that you'd been away from 82 to 92? Ergonomically, uh, they, they become much better. Uh, first, we, we had, uh, I think, the carbon chassis, of course, and soon after the carbon brakes. The carbon brakes meant that you could brake so late if you had to shift down with an H pattern, if you had to shift down from six to second, you, you simply wouldn't make it. Uh, I remember testing with Toyota uh, with the sports car in uh, Eastern Creek in Australia, and, and you had to sort of brake, shift down, and be back on the throttle, and it was really the shifting that limited your speed. You couldn't do it quick enough. And so for that reason, the sequential boxers came, later on the flipper system, so it became more and more comfortable. Uh, you remember the pictures of, of uh, Senna and, and Mansell and Piquet with, with the bandage on their hands from the blisters. So if you didn't have to do the shifting anymore, that was a great advantage. Then the fly-by-wire throttle, the carbon brakes, um, also the, the, uh, the flippering that you didn't have to use the clutch anymore, the headrests, all meant that it became more and more and more comfortable. So, uh, 
and much quicker with the cars much also, quicker yeah but yeah. but you could you could get to that speed because it was more accessible because of the comfort uh, so it wasn't like weightlifting anymore it was really all about the driving uh, and uh, then later on you got power steering in in the Le Mans cars we even got air conditioning uh, so uh, if it was a bit too hot you uh, you put it a bit higher and and if your steering gets heavy you put a bit more power steering so for me at uh, the last two Le Mans that I did okay uh, I was already in my 60s but but uh, for me it was like a walk in the park almost well let's talk about Le Mans because uh, that 1988 race is such a defining moment for your career but when we talk about that race as a whole you've made 24 starts at Le Mans yeah. in your career what is it about that race um, I think it's it's the the level of difficulty that's that is uh, that's just a challenge uh, of, of course uh, people that climb mountains like the Mount Everest and all that they they know that it's it's all about the challenge just the fact that it's so difficult is the the yeah your challenge your drive to do it uh, and there also it is like such a team effort uh, because Isn't that an alien concept for a racing driver? I always wonder what, how you guys cope with having to share your car with another racing driver. Is, in the, yeah, in the beginning, that's horrible. You know, <laughs> you, you want to drive for 24 hours, you know. There's a guy doing in my seat. Yeah, the, 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 some, some of them even pee in it, and then you have to sit in it. That's so it's horrible. <laughs> please, yeah, tell, it, please tell me that's <laughs> not true. <laughs> some of them do, you know. That, that, uh, uh, that, yeah, and, and they, they, they tell you that with a smile, and you think, ooh, you know. But anyway, uh, I mean, that, that was the exception and not the rule, thank God. But... Uh, no, so, so in the beginning, you have to get used to that. And in the beginning, you have to, uh, you know, you can get people, uh, you, you, you can take them out of Formula One, but you can't take Formula One out of the people. And I was a little bit, uh, when I was racing with, with Jonathan Palmer, then I was just racing him. You know, I, I wasn't looking at the bigger picture that together we had to win that race. I was just racing him. I'm not sure if he was racing me also. I, I have no idea. But that was it. If he went quicker with that same car than me, that's horrible you know you don't want that to happen so you was trying to beat each other's times and later on by the time i was at jaguar i was matured a little bit and calmed down a little bit and with with andy wallace and johnny dumfries uh, so sad that uh, johnny passed away uh, like a year and a half ago now uh, but but uh, it was a great great experience and that memory lives on forever of course and the three of you complemented each other because when you look at the the hard facts you were the senior driver Andy Wallace at the time had made the jump up from Formula 3 so he lacked experience Johnny of course had done that that year at Lotus in Formula 1 but would you say that you complemented each other when you look at what you were capable of doing? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I have a lot of presentations uh, these days uh, for, for, for businesses and, and uh, business clubs and you name it. And uh, very often I say like Le Mans is a race and, and any team effort, uh, you, you can lose that on your own. Uh, so, so if on the Hunodjera straight, uh, I would have just twisted the wheel. I can crash the car. There you go, job done. You 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 lost it on your own. That's so. So from, uh, unfortunately, we have too many examples in real life. You know that on your own, in a destructive way, you can do something. But in a constructive way, if you want to win something, uh, either in sports or whatever, you need a team, uh, and you you need to work from a team. Uh, so you always have to think, like like what can I add to this team? Uh, because ultimately you add to yourself and if you're always the go-getter that wants to take and take and take and goes into meeting rooms like what's in it for me you know then automatically you take from yourself and so it's 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 a creative process uh, to to create a winning atmosphere and it's it's an attitude of giving uh, giving all you've got giving that to the team and if everybody has that effort you become that unbeatable team how long did it take you to realize what you've just described Long, long. I, I realized uh, it was actually quite a, a game changer for me. It was uh, in 85, I was driving IndyCars for Foresight, very good team. Uh, I was leading the race with not uh, too many laps to go. Uh, and that was in Miami uh, on, that, on that tower on the pole that we know from the pole position. Uh, so on the top, I saw my number 33 by coincidence. Uh, and I saw 33 on the top and I took a deep breath while I was going flat out to that right corner in Miami, at Tamiami Park, and I took a deep breath and I thought, ah, 
I'm back on schedule, you know. So uh, I was on my way to winning that race, but then I blew it because I braked too late. I went in the gravel trap, thought I was going to hit the wall, but it turned out to be white sand. Uh, looking in the sun, uh, I was bracing myself and then there was no impact. I thought, what is this? So um, anyway, I lost that race because I screwed up. Um, but uh, in, in, in that time, my mindset was already much, much better than the years before. And then I, I was immediately uh, sort of like bought away by Gurney, All-American Races. A fantastic privilege to have raced for Dan Gurney, such an icon and such a great guy and great team. But he had more passion and ambition than money. Uh, so he split up with his teammate and all of a sudden I was there again. No right, team was uh, close to bankrupt and uh, that was it. And then I really, I, I basically let go. I thought, okay, I've been racing for 13 years now and I've tried everything I could. So I'm just going to play golf and I'm going to just enjoy myself. And if somebody thinks that I can actually do something, they will call me. And if that's Formula Ford, I will start all over again. And uh, whoever it is that calls me and, and recognize that I can actually do something, I will drive for them. Uh, and that's it. And then I will start over. And at the same time, I thought like, well, you know, what is it? Is it my driving? Is it my skills? And then I thought I'm, I'm, I'm better educated than most of the drivers there. So it can't be that. And if you over and over and do the same thing and end up in the same position, you have to wonder yourself like, you know, you have something to do with that. So I thought it's me. I can't blame all these teams and all the situations. So I thought, well, if it's not my driving, then I have to smarten up a bit, you know, I'm probably not smart enough. So I did a lot of reading. I uh, read one wonderful book. That's uh, first I, uh, I read the Silva Mind Control Method. That's all about visualization and meditation. And that helped me. And after that, I read a book, Three Magic Words. And uh, that, that sort of really taught me a lot. Uh, and the magic in your mind and all these things uh, because thinking is something that's totally free uh, so that's a very efficient process uh, and that helped me that strengthened me and then uh, Roger Silman from Jaguar TWR called me so I didn't have to go all the way back to Formula Ford I was happy with that I drove for them and I, I had a time where I drove better than ever before and I felt uh, wonderful so uh, that was a big uh, big yeah, change for me and how close did you get to not finishing that Le Mans in 1988? That was on a thin wire. That was really on a thin wire because what I've learned also, also in my business communications and, and, and uh, speeches, I've learned that, that what is different in business than sport, that in, uh, in business, uh, profit is a given and loss is the exception. At least I hope so for the people in business because you know you won't last if you lose if you sell a product you you earn money on that so uh, in business uh, profit is the given and the exception is losing uh, in sport losing is the rule and winning is the exception because no matter who you take whether it's Max Lewis uh, Messi Ronaldo Manchester United Barcelona Jordan Schumacher Senna you name them they've lost most of their races and matches uh, so, so basically you should start and that's how we started in, in, uh, uh, in Le Mans in 1988 I told the guys like listen we are not going to finish this race so they were surprised I said no the gearbox is going to break also in sports your attitude should be like okay I am going to lose this match I am going to win and uh, lose this race unless so it's really to make yourself sharp and to not underestimate your task that's how we started Le Mans eh? because we know in those days if you lose second gear eh, you bypass it you go from first to third and see how far you get I said let's not wait until that happens and then we're going to drive very careful i said let's start the race knowing like this box is going to break unless and was it a weakness was the gearbox yeah, always for most of the teams the weakest link was the gearbox so so when when third gear actually broke um i selected fourth and it connected so i thought i'm never going to touch this gear lever anymore and uh, not even in the pit and that was because just before i went in the car uh, raul buzel got out and he was doing undoing his uh, shoelaces and he said okay that's it for me i said what he says yeah car broke down oh what happened well i selected third gear was gone fourth gear gone fifth gear gone and that was it so then i got in the car for the last two hours 
and this half is the an sister hour, car. The sister car, yeah, yeah. And uh, we were leading, so uh, uh, so I get in the car, I get to Tete Rouge, and uh, uh, at some point, I think we must have been taking that in second, uh, I think. But I select uh, third gear, and it uh, it broke, so it was gone. Freewheeling, I put in fourth, uh, and it connected. And then, you know, having sort of Raoul's story in my mind, I thought I'm never going to touch this lever. We finished the race, and for the for the technos under the listeners, uh, the the secondary shaft was uh, split in the middle. So if I would have changed gear once, it would have just totally gone to pieces. And uh, so we finished the race. How much of the race was there still to go? I think you... about one and a half hour. So I so was in fourth uh, gear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's a fourth gear that was built for like 200 miles, huh? And then I still had to make a pit stop, so I was slipping the clutch until the end of the pit road. <laughs> uh, and and in those days you had radio communication, but also scanners. And I didn't want to make uh, a Porsche with Hans Stuck any wiser than they were. So on the radio uh, I got the message like, okay, yeah, you, my lead was shrinking like like mad, of course. So then uh, Kevin, who was uh, on the radio in those days, he said to me like, well, hey, he's so far behind now, so don't go much slower. And then I said, well, I have a little secret here. Uh, and then he said, like, yeah, we don't want to know, Jan, we don't want to know. I said, you're right, you don't want to know. So I kept it to myself because, uh, you know, uh, the scanners would have, I didn't want to speed up the Porsches. <laughs> That's fantastic. Wow. Mm. What, I mean, what a, what a tremendous moment for you after everything you'd been through. I feel so incredibly privileged uh, because... It, it's not, uh, I mean, nobody has, has, a, uh, has a patent on, on, on smartness or whatever, you know, just have to be lucky that you get the right thought at the right moment and they, they just come to me. So at uh, that, that stage, I'm, I'm so happy that, that these thoughts came to me and I made the decisions and that we've been able to, to just do that all together. So I feel just very, very uh, privileged that, that it was so well appreciated later. And it was the start of a, or a great friendship with both Andy and Johnny. Yeah, yeah. Johnny came on the podcast 18 months ago. Wonderful to hear about his Formula One career. I know that you and Johnny Dumfries were, were good mates from yeah. 88 onwards. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think after 88, they were more like brothers to me than, than, than anything else. Uh, I still have a great contact with Andy. And, and uh, yeah, it, it's, it's wonderful. We don't see each other often, but, but uh, like with good friendships, you know, even if you don't see them for 10 or 20 years, you know, you just pick up as if you just uh, got a phone call that got disconnected. So you just continue the conversation uh, where you stopped it the last time. And uh, no, that is like, uh, it's almost like an unconditional uh, love friendship, you know, that that is just for life when you think of johnny dumfries what do you miss about him uh, just just uh, his, his friendliness he, he's such a good good person and and uh, he's such a good friend and and uh, so much just just yeah really friendship and sympathy uh, he's such a great guy and he was a fantastic father you know i think he's, he's the best father you can have and for the people that that he loved and his friends, he he, he was all ears and 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 uh, no, so just a, just a great guy and 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 I I really can't sum him up in words, but uh, I hope I, I I come a little bit uh, halfway or something, but uh, no, he's absolutely a lovely guy. Yeah, and final one on Le Mans for me is you partnered many Formula One drivers at that race. You talked about Jonathan Palmer, but I can mention Eddie Cheever, Patrick Tornbay, Teo Fabi. But the year of all years, tell me if I'm wrong, was 1996 when you partnered Mario Andretti yeah. and Derek Warwick. You finished third overall. Can you describe what it was like to partner those two guys? Yeah, it's great. I, Derek already I knew from Formula 3 many years before that, eh, since 76 in Formula Ford. Uh, so, so I knew them for a long time, Derek Daly even too. And in sports cars I drove with, with uh, Jacques Villeneuve, Eddie Irvine, um, Stefan Johansson, Ralph Furman. Yeah, so, so many, many great drivers and it was lots of fun. But particularly with Mario, uh, yeah, Mario is, is uh, he's such, I mean, he, he's the guy, you know, he's just such a cool guy. And if you look at him, uh, if you would have to, to, to tell people like, what does a racing driver look like? Mario Andretti, that's the man, you know, so you would draw him out like that. But then he, he's such a nice guy that, that he can talk like for 20 minutes with his wife about the new nail polish she's got. So he, he's, he's 
he can switch very easy from very small trivial uh, issues and small talk to 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 like big things in motor racing. So so now he's 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 just a lovely guy. Yeah. Did Mario get the team aspect of Le Mans? I'm not sure. I think it was he was 58 at the time. I don't think you lose your skills of the driving, but the drive in your mind that uh, to be quick, you need to think that that motor racing is the most important thing in your life. And I think he was over that. There were other things in his life that were important. Uh, of course, uh, his kids uh, were racing, his grandchilds and everything. So, so uh, he did it because that's what he did all his life. But I think his mind was already out of it, but his body was still in there. Yeah, and it's been so wonderful to talk to you. Look, when you sum it all up, which was the best racing car you ever drove? Probably the, the, the Toyota, because at some tracks uh, uh, in 92, we were quicker than the Formula Ones. Uh, so so uh, I recall that we were testing after the, the, the Grand Prix in Monza uh, with the long straights, of course, helped by the long straights. I think there we were like two or three tenths quicker than, uh, than the lap record of Senna the day before. And we'll end our little chat just bringing it back to Zandvoort, to mm. this race. How do you see the future of the Dutch Grand Prix? I, I think it has a long future ahead of, uh, ahead of it, eh? without sort of like, like underestimating the task, of course, eh? because uh, you, you see it in sports, you know, the sports people, the teams, whatever you do today won't be good enough tomorrow. Uh, so, so we are very proud that we've, we've put something on the road last year uh, that is also inspiring to other organizers. Uh, we try to, to, to be, uh, of course, like, like uh, neutral uh, in, uh, from an environment uh, uh, point of view we wanted to be the most sustainable Grand Prix on the calendar and I think close to, uh, we, are, we are probably close with, with Canada uh, so we're very proud of that but also the festival type and the entertainment type uh, like, like the maximum effort we make to make sure that those people go home on Sunday and they had like, like a bucket list event that's, that's our intention uh, so, so we try to have a very empathic view uh, to the spectators with organizing the event we see that FOM is very happy with that and, and uh, sometimes uh, ask us even to look over the shoulders with other promoters and eh? we try to share the experience. So uh, now we're very, very proud and happy that we've been able to, to not uh, uh, drain energy from FOM, but that we've been able to add a little bit of value or energy to FOM. Eh? Who would have thought that? And that's only because of a lot of individuals focus on their own job and then you look up and you see what you created together. Eh? So that's wonderful. Uh, so I think uh, the, the, the marriage with FOM uh, look, looks to be uh, good. They are happy with us. At least we have that impression. And we are extremely happy here. Well, I hope on Sunday we've been able to top last year's event. It's interesting you touch on the sustainability of it because it's, it's fantastic seeing all the, all the fans cycling in. And then aren't there prizes for, for fans that recycle their cups? Yeah. Just all sorts of little initiatives like that. Yeah, well, you know, uh, when when you uh, you get a, at the entrance, you get a token. So if you order something, you uh, you hand in that token. Uh, basically, it comes down to it that last year we've been able to recycle 70% of uh, of all the cups, and we're trying to to collect 100%. Uh, so so we can recycle everything and have no waste. Uh, but there's lots of uh, other things that w that we try to achieve uh, for the for the electricity, for example. We can't rely on the normal uh, net network uh, that we have so we need generators but those generators all run on biofuel uh, we have um, uh, made smart grids so rather than having one generator in a corner seven and one in five etc we have smart grids so we have less generators and more cables if you like uh, so so there's lots of smart things like that i have to say and this is an initiative from from fom uh, rather than, than, than Holland. I, I like the Robocam, the robot cam in the, in the paddock and I hope that all the drivers will, will just make a maximum effort to just uh, say something in the camera or wave or whatever. But that's uh, a live stream to the Children's Hospital, the, the, the Maxima Medical Centrum in Utrecht. And that's a Children's Hospital. So those kids, you know, give me goosebumps. And uh, those kids are washing. And all the drivers that go by can say something there or do something funny or whatever. Uh, so that, that's one of the, the, the best inventions uh, from an entertainment point of view. There's so much inspiring stuff going on and it's been inspiring to talk to you Jan thank you when are we going to see you driving a modern Formula One car around Zandvoort 
Yeah, well, I, I can't wait. Just, from, <laughs> j just to help me from, I do the ana analysis for the Dutch public TV, <laughs> yes. the NOS, and, and to help me to know what I'm talking about, hey, because I think I know what I talk about, but I, I can't really confirm if that's actually true. Christian Horner, if you're listening. Yeah, well, some of the drivers <laughs> probably talk, to, they think that I talk from my neck, but I, 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 no, I would love that. That would very, be very nice. All right. Jan, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful to chat. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. What an inspiring man Jan is. He articulated his thoughts so clearly about such a wide range of subjects and his positivity is infectious. Every bit of advice he gives, especially the section where he talks about taking the initiative, if you do something, then people will help you, was interesting and helpful. Life lessons that we can all benefit from. Thanks, Jan. It was great to catch up and I look forward to seeing you again soon. As ever, please send in your memories and thoughts about Jan. Did you see him race in Formula One? Or were you at Le Mans in 1988 to witness his memorable victory for Jaguar? Let me know either by using the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid or you can contact me direct at Tom Clarkson F1. Which brings me on to what you sent in about René Arnoux after last week's episode. It was such a treat to have René on the show and it brought back a lot of happy memories for many of us. Let's start with this from Simon Worth. Love this one, Tom. Likewise, René forms some of my earliest memories of watching Formula One. A bloody fast driver and what a great guy. Loved hearing him chat about Gilles and Enzo Ferrari. Thank you. Well, thanks for the note, Simon. And you're right, on his day, René was the fastest man out there. And it was great to hear him talk about his friend Gilles and dealing with Enzo Ferrari. Next, let's hear this from Andrew R. Brilliant, Tom. Was wondering when you would get around to interviewing René, a hero of mine, when I first started watching Formula One in 1983. His one-lap pace was phenomenal, and I'd love to know what caused him to be fired one race into 1985. That was the only topic he wouldn't elaborate on, wasn't it, Andrew? But still, there was so much gold in there for us all to enjoy. And finally, what about this from Peter Carroll Krauss? I saw René win at Zandvoort in 1983. He drove to the track by himself in what looked like a late 60s or early 70s Rolls-Royce, and he was wearing just a t-shirt and jeans. He's the only driver I've ever seen lean forward in the cockpit as if to make the car go faster, or at least to be a little better aerodynamically. What a story, Peter. That was such an aggressive seat position, wasn't it? And René was without a doubt a dude. I can imagine him arriving at a racetrack in a roller. We'll leave it there for messages. We receive lots as ever. And I've read them all. Thank you. We really love your feedback. So what are you listening to next? How about F1 Nation's Dutch Grand Prix review? Just search your podcast app for F1 Nation and hear race previews and reviews every Monday. Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>